1: and a convicted, you know, drug smuggler. But to me, that's not who he is, you know what I mean? Like, I even took my daughter, um, we visited him in prison, and my wife and my family, like, you know, so for me, he was my family. Uh, He did that, but that wasn't how I saw him, if you know what I mean.
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, in April of 2005, youth pastor Mark Soper was sitting in his car when he heard the news that nine Australians had been arrested in Bali for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. His heart sank when he heard that one of the Bali Nine was his childhood friend Andrew Chan. He and Andrew grew up together as kids, they attended Christian camps and had spent holidays together. Sadly, Mark would eventually be asked by Andrew to read his eulogy at his funeral after Andrew was executed in 2015. Where did it all go wrong for Andrew? And how did he finally come to a vibrant faith in the Lord? Today, Pastor Mark Soper will discuss all this and more as he has a chat with Eric Scatabo. Mark, welcome to the
2: program.
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric, for having me.
2: Glad to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your family holiday to join us. Where are you at this moment?
1: I'm currently at Caravan Park in Alice Springs, just on our way to Uluru in a couple of days. So um, I've got about a five-month break So with the family.
2: And where are you normally? Where, where do you uh, live? I'm
1: norm- normally at Menai Salvo's in the Southern Shire and lead the church there at Menai Salvo's. So, yeah.
2: Okay, well, let's go back to April of 2005 you're sitting in your car and you hear this mm. shocking news take us back to that day
1: yeah i'm sitting in the car with my dad and uh, the radio was on and, and then just came on breaking news and they'd listed out the names and we're like oh surely that's not andrew chan and then my phone rang and then my dad's phone rang and i was two different people who knew that we knew andrew and just uh, said oh look it's all over the tv it's all over the news and again has been arrested and um uh, Literally, as soon as we got that full phone call, my dad and myself went straight to Andrew Chen's house, where his parents were, Mm -hmm. his brother and his two sisters were, and there was plenty of media um, and news at the front of their house, and so we just sort of made our way through and um, went and sat with the family. That was sort of pretty quick, probably within half an hour or so. so.
2: (laughs) Wow. So just... uh... A bolt out of the blue, and uh, we should say that your dad, David Sopa, uh, he's a pastor as well with the Salvation yeah, Army?
1: he's an officer, um, mm-hmm. 35 years, just recently retired as a minister in the Salvos, mm-hmm. and so yeah, he uh, invested a lot of time in Andrew, so I suppose it's a pretty intense pastoral visitation, if you know what I mean. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. and not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but your dad eventually ended up officiating at Andrew's wedding.
1: Yeah, at his wedding um, and also funeral, and um, my dad still got that picture on his desk. He's got a picture of him and Phoebe um, and him doing their wedding ceremony. It was sort of one of his highlights, I suppose. So, mm. yeah.
2: And that wedding, unfortunately, sadly, was the day before the execution.
1: Yeah, a couple of days before. Yeah, it mm. was.
2: Well, let's go back to when you met Andrew Chan. How did you meet?
1: My parents are. Uh, Salvation Army officers, mm-hmm. and so they move around a bit uh, my parents were appointed to the church or the corps at um, Enfield mm-hmm. Salvos and so Andrew and his family the Chan family lived um, in Bomara Street and we lived on Bomara about five doors down and I've got two older brothers and Andrew was the youngest in his family he had two sisters two middle sisters and an older brother Michael and so Michael and my older brother were similar age and the family just hit it off we were mm-hmm. just at each other's houses all the time, and um, that's just how it sort of eventuated, really. Um, every Friday, um, Andrew's parent owned a Chinese restaurant and probably only had a couple of days off a year, and so they'd work extremely hard and late hours. Wow. Um, so every Friday, in particular, um, all the kids come up and um, they'd have uh, Australian food, hamburgers, <laughs> <and> <laughs> or something, and um, We'd have Chinese that um, Ken and Helen, um, his parents, would, would bring up for us. So it was a bit of a highlight every Friday night. We'd have yeah. uh, having dinner with each other. So,
2: so they're uh, immigrants from China, is that right?
1: Yeah. I've been here for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
2: Okay, so that was your childhood. You and Andrew hanging out. What kind of things did you do together?
1: Yeah, all sorts of things. Played football. My dad um, had a soccer team that Michael and Andrew all played um, in, and I remember a funny story. My dad only had one team, and we had a variety of ages. And Andrew was the youngest by far, and he had his soccer jersey. He tucked it in his pants, it had come down past the bottom of his shorts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we went not, on. Not quite
2: soccer. a great fashion statement.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I can remember my dad took a basketball team all the way up to Stanford, and um, we played a basketball team. And Andrew was there, Michael was there, and. Um, and my dad took a basketball team from Menfield, just kids in the community, all mm-hmm. these boys, and um, went away camping and, and playing basketball and just all sorts of stuff. He'd come on our family holidays. Um, he was sort of the the fourth wheel, I was sort of brother, and he would come along. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: so yeah. your dad really had a heart for kind of taking Andrew under his wing, so to speak, is that right?
1: Yeah, my dad loved Andrew and... Um, Andrew would call him my parents' dad and mum, and my grandparents, father and, and Wow! Um, even though after three or four years, when we were into we moved away. We still kept in contact, and he'd come up and have holidays with us um, from time to time. And yeah, it was it was really good.
2: Yeah. So you you said you moved away. So you were very close for several years, but then your family relocated.
1: Yeah. So we moved. Um, I think we moved to Bathurst, and Andrew still he pe- he visited a, a number of times, and. um my parents had a new role for the Salvos, running a lot of um, divisional youth camps and things like this. So my dad would always make sure Andrew would, would come along. He's been, he been came to Broken Hill, and he'd been to out west somewhere at some camps and from time to time. So it's good.
2: so obviously in his childhood, Andrew was open to Christian camps and the things of the Lord?
1: Yeah, yeah. He um, was it In the Salvos, we call it a junior soldier, but sort of like an official Sunday school maybe. Um, but so he would have heard the the gospel in a simple fashion, I mm-hmm. suppose, and he would have known right from wrong, you know, but obviously, those teenage years, I think he got a little bit wild. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think he did, and that was sort of, I don't know, where things went a bit pear shaped, to be quite honest.
2: Yeah, so you were close to him. What kind of personality did he have?
1: No, he was the life of the party. He, he oh, yeah? Funny. He was funny. He would tell jokes. He was a um, phenomenal networker. Um. When I say not book smart, like I don't, I think he struggled at school, but um, I think he was a real hands-on sort of great with numbers. He was, yeah, he, he's quite intelligent, could read people. I was one of my best mates, so um, and I've known him for a long time. I suppose to ask the question, you know, why did why didn't I, you know, pick up on that? Well, you sort of know there's a, a side that you don't really know. That I think Andrew would say that he was good at wearing masks, you know. Mm.
2: Yeah. So, when did you first have an inkling that he was kind of going on a darker path?
1: Um, probably when he was about fifteen or so. He came to one of those camps every year. He'd come to this camp, and I thought he had this pretend tattoo, and um, so I, I pinned him on the ground. I was, I'm four years older than him. And <laughs> I scratched it with a stick, <laughs> and I was trying to wipe it off, and I couldn't. It was, it was this genuine real tattoo, and you know, I thought, what is going on? What's a fifteen year old doing getting a tattoo? And then. A sort of, um, Michael, his older brother, had moved out. He'd left home when he was eighteen. So sort of Andrew sort of left his own devices with his parents um, running their restaurant. When he was the day to day at home, he didn't really have much of a good influence on him at, at, at that stage.
2: So did he start hanging out with a rough crowd at that point?
1: Yeah, he was going to homebush boys, a little bit wild. And at that stage, he was probably a little bit of the smaller kid, so he might have got picked on a little bit, but. Hmm. But um, he wasn't gonna handle that for too long and uh, I think then he just sort of started hanging out with the wrong crowd and getting in trouble and that's where things sort of went through pear shaped
2: mm. And he started to work for a food service and he was highly regarded at his job?
1: Yeah, like people that know Andrew, not not what he's done like as a as a drug smuggler, loved Andrew. Like his neighbour <laughs> they loved him, you know. Uh, she's a single lady and you know, he'd take care of her. Um Wow. I can remember when this blew up with the media about he'd been arrested or whatever. Everyone in the street only had good words to say about him and um, neighbours came to Michael saying they'd knocked on the door trying to get a bad story about him but anyone they only had good reports to say. He was very likeable um, hmm. and people were sort of drawn to him really. He sort of had that little bit of... Uh, he was very cheeky and <laughs> <laughs> a good sense of humour.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like if you didn't know how things ended up, you would have thought the sky's the limit for this guy. is very charismatic, uh, was good at his job. But yeah. uh, I read an interview with him, and he said that uh, he got into the kind of the drugs and taking drugs himself because he wanted the quick money.
1: Yeah. He, um, well, you remember he was arrested at 21. So he mm-hmm. was very young. But um, obviously, myself, like I didn't pick up that he would use drugs um, as such, Um, but I think very much got more into the dealing side than the taking of drugs, I think. So that sort of wasn't great, that's for sure.
2: So the quick money, obviously, was a temptation that he got involved in and yeah, kind of led him down the path to drug smuggling and and the quick money, big money that you can make doing that, at least he thought.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a lot more than he was probably getting at work, that's for sure.
2: Yeah. And so you had no idea about the whole drug smuggling and his drug use. That was completely foreign to what you knew about him?
1: Yeah. Well, Obviously, you know, like, he's 15 and he's getting um, tattoos and, and those type of things. And, and obviously, Michael, his brother, sort of wasn't too happy with some of the mates he was hanging around. But really, no, mate, we had no idea. He was great at probably wearing too masks, you know, for those that knew him, they loved him. And, and then on that, the other side, there was sort of this, hard and sort of a little bit um, criminal there
0: You're listening to the story. Today Pastor Mark Soper is sharing with Eric Scatterbo about his childhood friend Andrew Chan who was one of the Bali Nine that were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia We'll hear more of Mark sharing about Andrew's life when we return We're continuing with Eric Scatterbo chatting with Mark Soper about his childhood friend, Andrew Chan, who was one of the Bali Nine that were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. Before the break, Mark shared about how he and Andrew grew up going to Christian camps together. Next, Mark will reflect on how Andrew's life took a turn for the worse in his teenage years and how it took a turn for the better after Andrew was in jail. Now let's back up a little bit to you personally. So you were
2: raised in a Christian family. You're a pastor's kid. Yeah. Were you always a, a good Christian kid?
1: <laughs> uh, relatively speaking, yes. Um, my parents are Christians, um, and they're pastors. Um, I had great opportunity to experience God, and my parents are probably why you know I made that decision. And I, my parents worked in youth ministry for a long period of time, so I so felt like my dad was. Very instrumental in my upbringing. He mentored a lot of my mates. All my mates loved my dad. They would come over and want to spend time with my dad. Um, wow. So I was very, very fortunate in regard to that. Um, mm-hmm. That just you know my sort of dad knew how much to give people a little bit of um, you know leeway or rope, you know, but not too much. He was very sort of good like that. And all throughout my life, he's always invested in young people. Like even when we were at Enfield, we took a bus of city kids up to the bush and go on camping, and, and then and then. All sorts of different things. Like, he just was always investing in young people. That was sort of, sort of his passion and a little bit of yeah. my dad's legacy, really. So, And I end up getting into youth ministry, anyway, sort of maybe a bit of a flow-on from what my dad sort of did. So, yeah.
2: Okay, so I'm just kind of getting this picture here. You're a strong Christian going into ministry, following your father's footsteps. That's your track. And you started off kind of on the same track, you know, going to the Christian camps. But then, as you've been mentioning his track went way off the deep end off the rails
1: yeah it's like saying off the rails but but to the naked eye to, to those around him like we were still in contact with him i, I saw Ranger two weeks before he went on this trip and he told me oh, i'm going overseas again and I, I just had recently had my motorbike license and um and i had his motorbike i was riding his motorbike yeah. while he was away and like probably four weeks to that he came. My dad had had organised. He was the minister at Earlwood um, Towers, which was only probably twenty minutes from Andrew's place. And probably four, or five weeks ago, Andrew had caught the train, I think, over and um, he'd uh, come to the church service. So, so we're still in relatively contact. We're not picked yeah. up every day, but but enough to know, you know, and be around him.
2: Well, I mean, this just sounds kind of bizarre. You have you know somebody on the news as being a drug smuggler, yeah, who, who was hanging out with this pastor's kid as his good friend yeah it just doesn't yeah. seem like you know the two of you 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 would think a drug smuggler he's in a, in a ghetto he's in a gang you know that kind of thing yeah but I guess it's a cautionary tale for all of us that uh you could you know get tempted to go off uh the straight path or the right path you know with lots of money and all that kind of stuff yeah. the temptation was there apparently for him
1: yeah my dad said at the funeral he says don't judge the man if you don't know the boy hmm. and um it was just sort of like you don't know how people begin, you don't know what they go through, and, um, like, I can generally say, okay, yeah, my mate Andrew Chan's a convicted, you know, drug smuggler, but to me, that's not who he is, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I, I even took my daughter, um, we went been to visit him in prison, and, my wife and my family, like you know, so for me he was my family. Uh, he did that, but that wasn't how I saw him. If you know what I mean.
2: Mm. Now you had a decision to make. You could have said, "Hey, you know, I'm a good Christian pastor guy. I don't hang out with drug smugglers." You could have just disowned him as your friend, but you yeah. chose not to do that.
1: Yeah, I was never, never an option. Really, I don't think that's been embedded in me. But it's not even part of the Christian. Pace, really, yeah. yeah. Um, if anything, it's the opposite. Um, for me and my family, that was, you know, and particularly supporting the Chan family through the whole process as well was probably the most important part mm-hmm. um, for our family while we're here. And and obviously, we're, we're not in contact with them on every daily basis, but you know, when yeah. significant moments were around, we were there to uh, just you know listening here or just checking in on them or um, or dropping in every now and then or going over for Chinese New Year at their place or, you know, for significant milestones.
2: So now he's in jail, he's in Bali.
1: Yeah.
2: And he's at his lowest point. Can you kinda of mm. tell us what happened at his lowest point there?
1: Yeah, he sort of tells the story a little bit. You know what I mean, uh he thought no one was coming for him and you know, he'd been interrogated for four days or something and I hadn't seen anyone that he knew. He's in a country where he doesn't speak the language, and all sorts of stuff going. Originally, he was all bravado, and, and my brother Luke and um, Andrew's brother Michael were on their way over, and they spent a month over there, uh, the first month of, of many. And um, I think Andrew was thinking, "Oh, he's going to kill himself." He goes, "Lord, send me someone that I know that I know I'm not alone." Sort of type of thing, and. Mm-hmm. Um, at that particular moment he was contemplating doing, and what had just happened is my my brother and Michael had just walked in and, and you know, in the corner of his eye, Andrew caught Luke and just yelled out, Luke, Luke, and and sort of was standing around. Some guards ran away from them, sort of, obviously they're in a building, and just jumped on Luke's leg and was just, you know, sobbing and crying, Luke, help me, help me, stay, me, save Wow. And um, for Andrew, I think that was a bit of, you know, you're not alone we're, we're here to help you, type of thing. And, um, and my mom had given um, my brother Luke a Bible to give Andrew, and eventually that was the only thing um, we just said, get back to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That was the only thing he had for months to Yeah, read, really. Uh, yeah,
2: so at his lowest point, uh, mm. he heard that you know, he might be executed. And then mm. according to an interview with him I read, he said that, hey, they're, if they're going to kill me anyway, I might as well kill myself and yeah. was about to take off his shirt and make it into a noose. But then he remembered, well, there's the heaven and hell issue. And yeah. and, that, and yeah. he decided that he if he killed himself, he wanted to make sure he ended up in heaven. So maybe yeah. maybe those Christian camps uh, that he had gone to had planted a seed that he remembered even at that lowest point in his life?
1: Yeah, well, I generally believe that he, he knew the right and wrong and the you know, heaven and hell... Um, but obviously, when people make a decision when they're young, that's when they're an adult that they've got to make those decisions for themselves. Yeah. And yeah. Um, obviously, when he was an adult, he didn't make those decisions, and so he had to make that decision for himself again. And and um, thankfully, it did change his life. And you know, I've got no shadow of a doubt whatsoever that Andrew is in eternity. Um, mm-hmm.
2: And getting back to your brother showing up, Andrew yeah. had just prayed, "God, if you're real, send someone who cares about me to see me."
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And then also, he never thought his brother Michael would have anything to do with him because they had had a falling out. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, when, when I suppose falling out like his brothers do, but obviously Andrew was probably doing stuff he, he shouldn't be doing, and Michael was sort of the big brother. And Michael was really the father figure for Andrew, and so rather than being a brother, he was probably more of a parent. So, oh, yeah. Um, so I suppose he,
2: Michael, the yeah. older brother, could have said, well, oh, hey, you... Made your bed, sleep in it. You, I told yep. you not to do this bad stuff, and here you're now in jail. But Michael, his brother, decided to be there for him and help him any way he could.
1: Yeah, Michael, mate, he's he's got one of those. He's got a a soft heart, um, but he's a tough cookie, Michael. And um, it was, he would he would be there through thick and thin. And he's mate in the story, he's a hero because mate his life got turned upside down for over ten years, and he's done everything he can whatever he could do he couldn't have done any more. like you know lawyers and talking to the Australian consulate and lawyers and this and that and every hmm. you know looking like his whole world got turned upside down
2: so it he was, obviously he was tough on Andrew because he loves Andrew yeah and then he yeah. showed it through his dedication through the 10 years while Andrew was in jail
1: yeah 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 so early on for the first 12 months uh, or first 6 months we would only get like three times a week, 15-minute visitation with him. So he was very isolated. So obviously
2: you flew up there to be with him?
1: Yeah, so I've been to Bali more times than I'd like to remember, (laughs) but at least once every year. And so after my brother went for a month with Michael, then I went for a month um, with Michael. um, And yeah, we just sort of worked it out from there. But for for that period of time, the only thing he had to read really was the Bible. And we didn't have a whole heap of contact with him. Um, but over that period of time, those short little, you know, I can remember going over and it was like two weeks into it, hadn't even seen him yet, and I got 15 minutes with him and, and just encouraging, you know, you know, hold on to that. Um,
2: when you saw him the first time when you first went to visit him, had he become yeah. a Christian already?
1: I think he was on the journal to reading that stuff, but the conversation was a bit of a blur to be quite honest, but it was pretty quickly, but, but that was what I said, make sure, you know, you you hold on to, you know, those truths and, and I can remember just flipping him some paper with some verses of scripture on them and that was as basic as a guy. If anything, he probably led himself to the Lord. And then then it was like a honing of his of his faith, you know, uh, and he kept growing in that. Um, obviously still, I'm to say immature and, and that. But and over a period of time he's had so many good people invest in his life over that ten years. So our family but there's so many other people like um Alan um, Wilkins is a guy um, down in Melbourne. He, he mentored him. He's had a lot of good, good people, and there was a Christian church service at the um, jail that he was at. And so it makes me proud to be a Christian, to be quite honest, the church capital C, that we have so many good people from all around the world that had come in and Andrew had connected with, and he knew so many people. And he knew, oh, you know, this person, this person, people from overseas, and he would never say no to a visit. Mm. And he would devour books, He would give him books, This what else has he got to do? So his faith really grew from a hunger for himself, but also just having some good, faithful men um, and women that invested in his life.
0: Well, that was part one of Eric Scadabo chatting with Pastor Mark Soper about his friend since childhood, Andrew Chan. Andrew was one of the Barley Nine who were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. And I have to say, it is just so incredibly sad to hear Andrew's story. I guess his short life is a cautionary tale for all of us about choosing the right path. As the Bible says, Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Sadly, Andrew went down a path that led to destruction But thankfully, before he died He then chose the road that leads to life And he dedicated the remainder of his life to serving Jesus We'll hear more about Andrew's life And how he grows in his faith next time But before we end today, I just want to let you know That if you can identify with Andrew's story And have made some major mistakes in your life Forgiveness is available You can pray with someone right now about being transformed and delivered from darkness. Our prayer line is 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. And we'd love to pray for you right now on that number, 1-800-772-936. Well, thanks for joining us for part one of Mark Soper sharing Andrew Chan's story. Until next time, when we'll hear part two, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story.
1: There's a church inside prison and there's also a mosque and they're literally right next to each other. And this is a guy's English name, Rafan, and he was a teacher in the mosque and he was a Muslim. And um, he was having dreams and he came over and I think asked Andrew to interpret a dream and Andrew goes, that's Jesus. That's in your dream. And so um, Rafan basically gave his life to the Lord
0: Pastor Mark Soper joins us once again to share about his childhood friend, Andrew Chan, who was one of the Bali Nine that were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. Mark will share how Andrew's faith grew while in prison and how Andrew was sharing his faith right up to the time he was executed. All that and more next time. The story, story. just another way vision is connecting faith to life.